Hi, everybody. I am Jen Johnson, and you are watching Thought by Thought Healing, where I talk about everything related to chronic pain and chronic symptoms and how, by understanding pain neuroscience, we can reverse and renew those neural pathways. I come at this from a Christian perspective, and so if that's important to you, then you are in the right place, and you should definitely subscribe. And if you're listening on podcast platforms, I would love if you would leave a review. This really is how we get that hope of healing out there. So on this channel, I interview experts in the field, and I also just talk about my own healing journey from coming from a, a life that just revolved around symptoms and pain and how by understanding pain neuroscience and the way that our beliefs and emotions um, play out in our bodies that I was able to reverse um, those many different types of symptoms. So first of all, I want you to know that I see you, I've been where you are, and it is difficult, um, but there is hope um, and so on this channel, I talk about my own healing journey and some of the tools I use um, or used. And I am also a chronic pain coach. So if you are interested in working with somebody, then check out my website, which is thoughtbythoughthealing.com. And um, you can follow me on uh, Facebook and on Instagram also. On this channel, I talk about my own story and I also interview experts in the mind-body field. And so today I had the honor of having um, uh, Georgie Oldfield with me. Uh, so I'm going to read her bio to you. Georgie Oldfield, MCSP, is a leading physiotherapist and chronic pain specialist, promoting a pioneering approach to resolving chronic pain through her online SIRPA, that's S-I-R-P-A, recovery program. Georgie is the founder of SERPA, an organization dedicated to promoting the concept that chronic pain is part of an unconscious protective response caused by learned nerve pathways rather than any physical abnormality found. Hence, full recovery is possible. And I agree. As well as her clinical work, Georgie gives talks and writes widely about the concept publishing a book, Chronic Pain, Your Key to Recovery in 2014, and giving a TED Talk in Manchester, UK in 2019. That's a really good video if you want to watch it. In 2010, through SERPA, she developed the first training program worldwide, enabling health professionals and coaches to learn how to integrate this approach and the concept on which it is based within their own work. Georgie has also organized and hosted three conferences in this field, which were held at the home of the Royal Society of Medicine in London in 2015, 17, and 2022. So without any further ado, I bring you Georgie Oldfield. Enjoy. Bye. Hi, everybody. I am Jen Johnson, and you are listening to Thought by Thought Healing, um, where I talk ev about everything related to chronic pain and recovery from chronic symptoms. And I also interview experts in the field. And like I mentioned in my intro today, I am just honored to have with me Georgie Oldfield. So thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Yes. Um, first, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the work that you are doing. Um, this hope is just, it's so important. There are just millions of people in chronic pain with seemingly no hope. And here you are getting that news out there. So thank you. It needs a lot of us to do this. <laughs> yeah, it's true. 
Um, I want to just start by reading a quote from your website, and then we will just use that kind of as a launching pad and just go wherever we go. Um, so on your website, you have, my aim is to help people who suffer from persistent pain and for whom conventional medicine has failed to find an answer. And we could go in, in so many directions just from that <laughs> one symbol. Yeah. Quote, but, um, maybe just talk about, um, how this all came about for you, how you started in physiotherapy and now are geared towards chronic pain and just a little bit of that journey for us. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I've been a physiotherapist, I hate to say, uh, this year, 40 years. <laughs> so a long time. Nice. Uh, still working as a physiotherapist. Um, and I remember just being concerned when I was working in the National Health Service um, about 20 years ago by the lack of um, therapies we have to offer people with pain. Okay. Um, and I was working in the community at that time as well, and therefore there was very little we could take into somebody's home to help them with pain. So I began to sort of look and see what else I could do, and you know, my own journey went through a few uh, complementary therapies that I was training in, and then the results were actually really good, so I decided that I wanted to work privately, set up my own clinic, but still questioning. Probably questioning more because I had longer with my clients. So in the NHS, we have a shorter time that you can actually see clients and you can set your own amount of time that you have with clients uh, when you run your own clinic. So I had more time to think about what's happening. I realized results were improving and we all know about the therapeutic alliance, how it's just as important the relationship between the therapist and the client as whatever you're doing with them. Um, but I began to see some things that were incongruent really with what with my training um, and I was also experiencing some of these so for example I left the NHS and I can't remember exactly when but within a few weeks I woke up in agony with sciatica I had no clue why um, and I knew I hadn't done anything hurt, hurt myself or anything um, and I struggled with it for a few weeks I did go and have some treatment um, and it was actually with a lady who did craniosacral therapy with an emotional uh, release as well. Oh. But she was the first person who ever said to me, and I've never said it to a client, so what's going on in your life? <laughs> because if we don't know, we can't ask. And I think this is the problem with the medical world is we're all blinkered and we look at, focus on the physical, what's going on physically without looking at anything around what's going on in our life and what have we experienced. Um, and so that was the start of my journey, trying to find an answer, realising, OK, so I left the NHS, I'd set up my own clinic, I needed to make it work. I'd stopped having a regular salary, my husband's self-employed, I'd stopped my pension from the NHS, I had to set up a new one, all these things. And I was anxious, um, but you just stuff it down and you hide it and you carry on. <laughs> we all recognise that now, don't we? Yes, 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, sorry, go on. I, I love that you said, if we don't know, we can't ask. Yes. If we don't know about this connection between the body, brain and the body. We, we don't even know how to, to start actually taking care of people, right? No, absolutely. And, and we as individuals can't even consider it ourselves if we're not aware. And I certainly wasn't. You know, I would never have thought, uh, well, well, I just 
like we do, we thought, I thought when I rolled over in bed, I must have hurt my neck in bed. <laughs> Slept with the same pillows and the same mattress for years, but uh, still woke up in pain. So, and I think that's why when I, when I researched and researched, read around, talked to colleagues, um, including the trainer psychotherapist, and then came across Dr. Sama's book in 2007. I think it was Healing Back Pain I read first. And for me, it was an epiphany. It was a complete aha moment, um, helped, I think, by the fact that um, halfway through the book, I woke up one morning with neck pain. It was really bad neck pain, struggling to move my neck. I was going to go on a five-hour car journey with my children, uh, and I, I had all that pain. And it, because I'd read half of the book, I knew why I had pain, but I've not reached the bit that told me what to do about it. Sure, Yeah. So what I noticed was that within an hour of the situation that was the cause of it easing, my neck pain just settled. I could move move my neck easily. Uh, so that was such an important thing for me. And I really feel like we as practitioners benefit so much more, and probably our patients benefit as well, from us understanding on experiential level. Mm -hmm. And I don't really feel we can do this work without understanding this on an experiential level, because this is the mind-body, this is human experience, it's who we are, um, and we need to understand that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, just being known and seen by the person that you're working with um, just does wonders for our brain, right? Absolutely, absolutely, I think it's really important. Um, and I think at that point it was just really challenging because I couldn't find anybody um, in Europe or the UK who did this work, which is why in the end I contacted Dr. Sarno and thankfully he did invite me um, to observe his work and skip his. Um, and then I came back and uh, and that was a wonderful experience. I've never been abroad on my own before anyway, uh, so that it was a huge experience for me, but fantastic. Um, and came home completely enthused and really was one of those practitioners who, right, I want to do this, I want to do that. <laughs> and probably put a lot of people off by initially being overly zealous about it all. Uh, so I soon learned <laughs> that that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I, I, I assume that everybody who... Um, learns about the mind-body connection, goes through this, I don't know, evangelism phase of we have, to, we just have to tell everybody, which is not bad, but it, it does often put a pressure on us um, to spread this news, which can actually <laughs> cause some symptoms. Did you discover that at all? Was there like a pressure afterwards? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Still do occasionally. Yeah. Just because we're practitioners doesn't mean we don't get symptoms. Right. Um, but yeah, I think this, I, I think when we start, we just think, oh, I get it, I understand, that means you must be able to understand as well. And so we assume that everybody will get it, will understand, and then we begin to realise, no, that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, and I remember um, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, the paediatrician in uh, California, when she came across the Adverse Childhood Experiences Studies, in her TED talk, she also says, you know, you know, that I had this epiphany, I understood it. I thought, great, I'm going to tell everybody about, you know, ACEs and how it, in the, it impacts people in later life and the impact it has on children. We've got to look after our children. And then she realised, no, this is this is not going to work. This is a, um, a journey, really. 
just because we understand it. Um, we have, and we always say this to our practitioners: we meet people where they're at, yeah. um, and that, and depending what what you say, what you uh, advise, absolutely depends on where they're at and whether they're ready. And it's about sowing seeds, and sometimes those seeds don't flourish for weeks, months, or even years, or maybe never, <laughs> and we can't convince them. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, you mentioned the ACEs study. Can you just give a summary of what the ACEs study was about and what it showed? Uh, I can't give you any facts and figures because I'm rubbish at those. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I haven't looked at them for a while. Um, But basically, this was done in the late 1990s and has been ongoing. So they have, you know, thousands and thousands of people they've done studies on. And they looked initially at people who were struggling with weight, so were morbidly obese. I'm wondering why these people hadn't, uh, many of them would lose weight, but then pile it back on. And they started looking at these people. And then they began to realize that these were people who had adverse childhood experiences. So, um, you know, maybe their parent was in prison. Maybe there was some emotional, sexual, physical abuse. Looking at the major traumas, um, rather than sort of any minor ones, because we know that there are so many other more minor traumas. Um, and looked at these people who had gone through these experiences and then began to study them even more and realised it's not just about weight, it's a, you know, the number of adverse, um, they looked at initially eight and then ten of these adverse childhood experiences um, and started to recognise what a high proportion of people in what was where the study was done and middle sort of western class um, people uh, midwestern you know i think mostly white middle class people and that there were significant amounts of adverse childhood experiences and they found that when they looked at these studies they realized the link between cancer autoimmune um, conditions pain all the main killers in the Western world, uh, that there was a major link. And the more adverse childhood experiences they had, the more chance they had of one of those being triggered. doesn't mean that everybody with cancer will have had, you know, major adverse childhood experiences. You certainly need to consider Yeah. Yeah. And what I love about mind-body medicine is that we're not left with just that, that, um, that information that we have a more propensity to have chronic pain or all the other things you men- mentioned, but there's also a way out. And, and that's the, the hope that we want people to know about is that yes, yes, um, there it is true. There is a tendency for there to be chronic symptoms in people who've experienced trauma, um, but we can work to reverse those. And, and that's why it's, it's just such good news. Um, yeah. If you were going to explain to somebody what what is pain and and what isn't pain, what what comes to mind for you when I first ask that question? Because it's very difficult. I, I find it really difficult to explain to people. Um, I think basically pain is a, a perception. It's not actually a sensation, which is what. We used to uh, say it was with all the, the old pain science, the new pain science, um, that you stub your toe, you have a pain, and that there, therefore pain is insensible. But what we know now is that pain is a perception 
from our brain. So it's influenced by past experiences, um, by our mood, by fear. There are all sorts of things that influence it. it might go up there, but then it's the brain that determines whether we're going to have pain. Yeah. So it really is a perception in the brain. So you, the pain will be the same whether you have a physical um, injury or whether it's a neural pathway. Therefore, it's so important that we look at red flags, we look at there's been an injury and we check that there's nothing um, serious underlying pain. Okay, yeah. Um, so we just took a pause in the recording and we're trying to fix the audio. And so if you're wondering why Georgie all of a sudden has big ears, it's because we are trying to make this um, more audible. But... Okay, so we ended with um, pain is a perception, which is a hundred percent true and so so important um, in understanding why we have control over control is too strong of a word. We have influence over our pain and our um, experience of pain. Um, okay, so pain is a perception. What do you say for people who, coming from a, a physiotherapist perspective, people who have had an injury, the tissues, you know, seem to be healed, and yet we we still have pain. What? How? How do you approach that with people? I think it's easier now than it was back in uh, when I first came across this work because pain science has evolved so much in the last fifteen years. Um, so with the work of Lorimer Mosley, the pain scientist, Lorimer Mosley, uh, Peter Sullivan, and lots of other work looking at functional MRI scans, um, I think it's more widely accepted now that pain is um, your, your pain that persists after an injury is healed, um, is neural pathway pain, is neural pathways, neural circuits that have become learned um, and become sensitized. Yeah. So I think it's a little easier than it was, uh, but there's still that, I think the thing that's still missing, they work, uh, physios, osteopaths, doctors, not, not all of them will accept this yet, but it's getting easier because the pain science is there. Um, but it's also about, rec- um, I think what's missing often is the lack of understanding about the influence of trauma and of emotions, not just fear. And in the, in the fact that emotions can trigger uh, pain. So if we don't acknowledge and express how we feel, that they can manifest as pain. I yeah. think their emotions, most people seem to accept that fear, um, catastrophizing, because the studies have shown this, will cause pain to increase, will amplify pain. Um, but there's a slight difference with also accepting that we um, trigger pain as pain. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of trauma, um, and I've heard you mention this before, so I think we're on the same page here, but, um, yes, the ACEs study pointed towards trauma, um, sets us up for, for mm, more potential to have pain, but there's a lot of people, including myself that didn't have childhood trauma and still ended up in, um, horrific chronic pain. And, uh, and other symptoms. We're only talking about pain today, but it's true of all these other symptoms. And um, for a lot of people, it shows up after this. Um, for me, I had trauma in my adult life. And so it showed up, 
you know, like a, a year afterwards or um, wh- what is that about? What What is the brain's role that's that's causing me to not have pain while I'm going through the trauma? And then later, all of a sudden, boom, my life has become tiny <laughs> as I, you know, gear my life around this, this pain. It's quite a big question. <laughs> Lots of different aspects to it. Yeah. Um, trauma does influence the nervous system. So it will put us more on edge, make us more reactive. Uh, our primal brain might become more protective and therefore react more quickly to things. Um, trauma is also not just the big traumas. It is cultural expectations, religious expectations, family expectations, you know, being told that, um, you know, you're the good one uh, as, you, as you're growing up. No trauma, just you're the good one. Or maybe uh, you've got loud confrontational siblings and you are a bit shy and then you become quiet because you can't get a word in edgeways. So that can cause pressure because, um, for example, you might start reacting to if you don't like confrontation and you die. Then if somebody uh, is confrontational, that can trigger something within you. So that can actually cause an edgeways. Um, if you are uh, not listened to, uh, maybe that's more important for you when you're uh, older. Um, and it could be even just things like social media, somebody doesn't get back to you. That, again, can cause a different response to somebody who was listened to compared with somebody who wasn't. Yeah? Yeah. So lots of different things, you know, maybe, you know, uh, normal sending children to the naughty step rather than teaching them that anger's bad. You need to uh, go, go to your room or sit on the naughty step. You mustn't be angry with the system. Teaching them not to acknowledge emotions. So these, I, I love Gabamate's book, uh, recent book, The Myth of Normal. Just because it might have been normal for so long to send a child to their bedroom when they're having a, a paddy um, or to um, do whatever, doesn't, doesn't mean it's right, doesn't mean it's going to create healthy children. Yeah. So if we're growing up in a family where we are taught that anger is bad, um, literally maybe just by being told off or being angry, um, or being told off, you know, don't be a crybaby or whatever, and it might not be trauma, but then as uh, Gavamata says, trauma is not what happens to you, but how we respond to, how our body responds to what's happening. So it will impact us all in different ways. Um, And sometimes, I would suggest more often than not, there will be mind-body symptoms, maybe minor ones, as we're all growing up. I mean, I certainly had didn't have significant pain um, later, uh, I did later in life, but initially I would get, um, let's say, a, a few bowel problems, a bit of a touch of IBS or um, uh, stomach issues, or I'd have a bit of sciatica, but nothing extreme, or I might have a headache. Um, or I might have a cold. And these are probably all things that uh, responding, resulting from my personality um, because of the way, you know, my experiences in life. Um, so partly my personality and how I face things in life, uh, what my, depending on what my experiences are. And it might not be anything big, but sometimes it's about a layer upon layer upon layer um, or maybe something like you said a year later, maybe there's so many much that we haven't dealt with and we cope and we cope because we're known to be copers and 
shit happens and we've just got to get on with it. So we might deal with that, but it often is soon after, or like you say, maybe a year later. But maybe if we haven't dealt with all the stuff that's gone on um, during that time, and we've just carried on, then there may well be a trigger. And depending on what's actually happened, maybe it's, uh, I don't know, maybe somebody with a beard did something, um, you know, in, the, in that traumatic time, you associated it with that person with a beard, and then maybe somebody with a beard is angry with you a year later. That could trigger you, but unconsciously, it would all be unconscious because your primal brain goes into shutdown because you don't fall apart. You know, you deal with things. Right. And therefore, it will, could then manifest as symptoms. And then I think it often persists. Well, we know studies have shown that pain persists um, because if we're anxious um, and we can be made anxious by seeing MRI scans and things like that. And we know that if we have scans, we're more likely to have more invasive and afterwards. So that reinforces any anxiety. If we're depressed at the time of the um, pain onset, um, you know, all these things, past trauma, that is a, a, uh, plays a part in whether pain persists, and our personality. With one of the studies uh, that looked at personality traits with somebody, uh, with people going through a um, uh, placebo car accident. Have you seen that study? I have, I've read about it, yeah. Yeah, so that so they did a personality profile at the beginning of these people, and then they um, scored them, and then they put them through this placebo car crash. It's a proper little car, but they knew that the speed it went before it stopped would not cause any tissue damage at all. And yet, twenty percent had pain straight after, and ten percent still had pain a month later. But they had predicted with ninety-two percent accuracy from their personality profile who would have pain a month later. Which is incredible. So our personality plays a part and our personality is formed due to our past experiences as well. So as I said, quite a big answer to a little question. Yeah. Um I, I love talking about personality traits. Um, you know, everybody has what what they attach to in this um in this recovery work. But I I just remember learning like, oh, personality traits are developed. What okay. Well, if I can develop one, then I can also develop a new one and I can I can also shift and change this. It's not easy, but um fear-based personality traits are, I mean, they go with me everywhere. And so does my pain. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, I wonder if there's a reason for that. Um you um you said um you're the good one um when you were talking about yeah, personality oh, yeah. traits being developed, and oh my gosh, that expectation that in I mean, so much of this work is not well. None of it is about blaming others. It's about realizing, oh, somebody gave me a compliment once, and now I feel a pressure to live up to that standard always, and yeah. to be the good one or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and often the labels that were given in childhood, and I was the good one. I was such a goody goody to the point that when I got married and had children, my husband would deliberately do something naughty because he'd know I'd be going, Oh, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> I'm so much better now. <laughs> but you know, the children will get, I'm the naughty one or I'm the clumsy one. And it becomes a belief. And then we know that beliefs can then play a part and manifest in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, they sure do. They sure do. <laughs> um, 
Okay. So, um, so what do you think the pain, the pain as a signal, um, what, what do you think it is calling us to? Is it, is it, um, just letting us know, or is it calling us to a, a change of action or, you know, what, what's the purpose of pain when it's not structural? What's the purpose of it? I think in general, it is a, a protective response, protecting us from something that our unconscious mind might perceive to be dangerous. Um, and, and it could be anything. It could be you know, a thought or an emotion like um, anger. Then pain will protect us from feeling that anger. It could be protecting us from um, changing our careers because there's such a so much at stake. Um, and in fact, I remember one patient who had back pain, did his assessment, and this is many, many years ago. And, and we started looking at the underlying reason for his back pain. And he realized that it had come on because he started to feel unsatisfied in his job. He was a professional. And he was really unsatisfied and wanted to change his career. But the pain was stopping him from changing it because you know, how was he going to feed his family? He had two children. How was he going to manage them? And it was such a big issue. The pain stopped him even having to consider um, doing that. So I think there are lots of reasons. There are even some uh, metaphysical explanations where they uh, say that certain emotions uh, cause certain uh, pain in certain areas. Um, and that's always an interesting one as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah. I find that interesting also. Um, so, um, and, and I, and I assume that then what we're saying is when that, when that pain comes and shows up for the first time and it's, yeah, work has, has gone bad or, um, I don't know, you, you've created a, a trend where you're not standing up for yourself or, or something, um, the pain shows up and we go to the doctor instead of um look at the relationship um what 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 then what happens to the pain then if we continue going to all these other avenues of trying to solve the pain where does that lead us often it does lead us down the alleyways and uh, it just persists because we start being given labels and again studies have shown that these labels that uh, are given to clients can make them the situation much worse um cause the pain to persist, cause it to get worse. Um, so, and, and it's constantly searching outwardly for an answer rather than recognizing that the answer is within, which is such a huge thing. It's a huge turnaround for people. If they're constantly looking at the, the, the pain, they're focusing on that pain and what they can and can't do because of their pain. And it's so fear-based that that's the first thing we need to work on is the fears. Um, but even then it's, such a hard thing to start thinking well the pain is in my back so uh you know how can i not think about that or start to accept that maybe there's something inside that something's telling me something it's a message from within and it's i think it's a really hard concept for many people to get yeah and about surrender you know when we say surrender uh you know it literally is about stop fighting thinking trying whatever and let go and surrender to what is people often think that that means you know if i surrender the pain's going to completely overwhelm me right. whereas actually if you stop pushing against it often things will then 
Yeah. And just as you're um, sharing that, it's just reminding me of, of when my pain came about, there was a ton of legitimate stress in my life. And there were actions I needed to take and beliefs I needed to look at and people I needed to stand up to um, and, and changes that needed to happen. And instead of doing any of those things, I started scheduling doctor's appointments and trying to figure out how I was going to fit this appointment into this schedule that was already a mess. And, and all I essentially did was just add one more huge stressor. And if you're watching and you're in pain that you don't even know until you're done with it, how stressful it is to be going to those doctor's appointments, trying to fit them in, um, hoping for an answer, getting stuck in the waiting for it room for another hour, um, having some totally scary things yeah. yeah and it just adds to it adds to the the distressing emotions that you're feeling and then adds to and intensifies the the pain that you're experiencing absolutely and we're trying to change beliefs you know and we can't just suddenly change a belief so you brought up beliefs um how do you, how do we, how do we change our beliefs? How do we change our neural pathways? How do we heal? The big, the very, the very big core question. What does that yeah. look like? <laughs> well, I think first of all, it, it, you can't convince somebody to change their beliefs. This is, you know, we can help start to influence, but a belief is our truth. It's what we've learned is, is the truth. Um, but we can we, we can start learning, read, and I think this is where the evidence base, this is where the educational side comes in. Because the more you can learn and read, read things and start, um, what's the word, uh, embodying it yourself, beginning to connect with your situation in relation to what you're reading, then you're getting insights, you're getting epiphanies and aha moments which allow a shift in that belief. And I think it's a lot easier for people when they start experiencing those to then start changing their beliefs. Um, if they are struggling with that, then there's no reason why they can't continue to do, if they're open to doing some of this uh, work, sort of some of the uh, self-soothing, the emotional awareness, the journaling, by doing those strategies, then they can begin to see what's happening. And one of the first things I do with a client is get that when they sitting in front of me is to uh, encourage them to just relax first of all focus on their heart calm their breathing down um, and just really start self-soothing and slowing their breathing down and then maybe do a bit of emotional awareness so take the attention away from the pain it might be a bit of somatic tracking or emotional awareness where you're just noticing the sensations in your body in relation to an emotion and quite often while they're doing that pain will just calm down. Another thing is, in the opposite way, you could ask them to imagine bending over um, or doing something that causes pain. And quite often that will trigger a response in the body and have and they'll have pain. So again, that's reinforcing to them that this their belief that they've had for so long might not be completely accurate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that that really sets up a, a foundation for for being able to change um, change those, those deep seated beliefs around what pain is. Um, yeah. 
Um, there's a piece of evidence that you've mentioned that I don't expect you to remember any statistics around, but, um, and I, and I think you said maybe it was the nineties, but when, when did we start doing scans of people that, um, were not in pain that kind of has helped us understand this evidence of what pain is and is not? I think it was at least the 1990s, if not earlier. Um, because initially all they were doing was scanning people in pain. Um, and I remember I remember when I came across this work and talking to a radiographer who was a client um, about this, and she just was so angry with me um, and just saying, well, every client I see who comes in in agony, you know, you, you can see they've got to generate. Uh, to severe degeneration and I was saying but the trouble is you don't see those people who uh, aren't in pain and the, and the, but she wasn't having it. Um, so it was a few years after the scans all started you know they started doing MRI scans and cat scans and things but yeah absolutely you know not just on backs but there are studies looking at uh, knee pain and uh, hip pain um, shoulder pain. So, for example, the shoulder pain. It's looking at baseball players um, and showing showing that they've got degeneration in the shoulders. Uh, the, and I can't remember this is where I don't know statistics, but um, something like fifty odd percent of them, their dominant shoulder, they had torn uh, ligaments um, or generally degeneration in the shoulder, but no pain, and they were playing at an elite level in baseball. Um, and the same with hip pain with hockey players, knee pain with basketball players, that they all showed signs of quite significant, or a lot of them showed signs of significant degeneration, and yet none of them had pain and they were working at an elite level. So, you know, when you see things like that, I think, again, it can be helpful to, to help influence people when they began to begin to really see that this is just a normal part of ageing. Um, just like gray hairs of the spine, as Dr. Sani used to say. I love that. Yeah. yeah. Um, my mom, uh, maybe, I don't know, six months ago or something, had some knee pain and went in and had some scans done. And um, and as you know, it's so hard when it's family and you know things and whether to say something or not. But um, they found, you know, a torn meniscus and um, she read her MRI reports before talking to the doctor and emailed us all, you know, and was like, I'm, you know, oh, I have a torn meniscus and et cetera. Um, and I, I didn't respond. And then she went in and talked to the doctor and she sent a follow-up email to us all and said, turns out the doctor says a lot of people have a torn meniscus and they don't have pain. And so that was really exciting to see, okay, it is, it's, it's showing up in, in Western medicine. And so that these scans that we're talking about is starting to become more mainstream, which is incredible. And if the people in the white coats are saying that, it must be true. It, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a packed statement, isn't it? <laughs> but we do trust them. You bring up a, a really good point. We trust them and we base our emotions on people that we trust. Absolutely. And our beliefs are what we've been brought up with. And, you know, this is why I think the older we, the older we get, the harder this is to change our beliefs. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and yeah, I think it is challenging. And hopefully with the younger generation or generation gradually, these beliefs are coming more into common awareness. Um, so yeah. It's easier for them. <laughs>
That's um, it's reminding me of another story when I was, was in chronic pain and I had uh, one physical therapist that every time I would go to my pain would get horrific. Um, and, and he was a very stressful person and I, and I felt judged by him. Um, and, and, and then, um, he couldn't help me. And finally I went back to my old, old, old physical therapist and I walked in, he sat down, he did it. He did something manual, um, on my back. And he was like, oh yeah, you have, you know, this thing. It's like a normal abnormality though. As long as you don't lift 300 pounds, you're going to be just fine. And I literally walked out of that office with, I mean, it must've been like 50 to 75% less pain. Um, because he had said, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember the same thing, uh, you know, when I was 40 and I developed uh, arthritis, well, pain in these fingers and thumbs. As a physio, that's not great. <laughs> you need sure. your hands. And I was driving like that. Mm-hmm. And I was worried it wasn't just osteoarthritis, but rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, went to see my GP, who also was concerned it was rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, guess what happened to the pain? shut up luckily got a quick appointment with a an early diagnostic rheumatologist um and he was just so calm and and just oh yeah no it looks like just osteoarthritis you don't need to be worried about it and take some x-rays but i don't think it's a big deal and the pain eased by 50 percent and then i went back the following week for the results and he said no you've got a loose body in that and that thumb and yes you've got some arthritis in those joints but you know it's it's no big deal. I said, well, can I carry on playing tennis? Do what you like. It's fine. <laughs> and after that, within about a week, it had gone. When I look back, I I know I, because a colleague was giving acupuncture to me, and I thought it was the acupuncture, started training to do acupuncture. When I look back, I can see what was going on and all the stress I was under at that time and how my trust in this guy and the relief of it not being an, an autoimmune condition and everything just calmed down. Yeah, it is amazing um, how much calming down and knowing you're okay can yes. re- relieve. And the opposite, how if you're told your spine's crumbling or you know, a r- rugby player, um, that I, a professional, ex-professional rugby player I saw, uh, he had been told his, as he put his yacht fracture, her back's broke, her back's broke. He'd been told that from the scans. He piled on the weight. He wasn't doing any exercise, couldn't move, uh, walk more than a few hundred yards, if that, and had been like that for 12 years since he retired. And luckily, just before he came to me, and he was very skeptical when he came to me, but just before he came, he'd had an x ray again, and they just said, Oh, you've got a rugby player's back. You know, yeah, all rugby players have backs like that. The relief was must be huge. And I remember him then. Um, we, I assessed him and something must have sort of clicked with him. And he said, I went back and in the afternoon, I was watching a game of rugby, got up to um, make a cup of coffee and I realized my sciatica had gone. And then he came to one of the group sessions I ran with some people. And after that, his back pain, something somebody said, and I bet he hadn't read my book or done any journaling. For him, it was just aha moments. He And it, he was also another learning for me because I realized that he had his goals. I knew what I wanted from him uh, uh, because I felt he could really get back to fitness and to lose weight and everything. He, that's not what he wanted to do. He just wanted to be able to play football with his son. Uh, and it was a real learning opportunity for me. 
know, setting goals and making sure you set them with the, the client and that go with their, what they are wanting to do rather than what I felt he could do. Well, that, that's interesting because that kind of brings up the idea of, of pressures. And, you know, if you're in something elite like that or high level anything, um, mm-hmm. we really, we have a lot of external pressure, but we also have a lot of internal pressure. And if, if your goal is to, in healing, is to get back to this high pressure point, I think we just have to look at that and ask, what's the motivation behind this? Is it? And I think it's so important when we're working with people to consider, you know, what is it they're wanting out of recovery? And I would suggest we don't want what we had before because that was a very pressure-filled life. Um, And I think what was interesting with this guy was that he was heading towards retirement when his pain came on. Now, if you've been a professional rugby player, what are you going to do? There was real conflict about what he would do for the rest of his life when he was only, I don't know, 30-odd. Um, and he blamed the pain on a tackle he'd been in five years before the pain came on. Yeah. It's really interesting how we piece things together and often not in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were to say, like, if we're looking at the re- the the recovery journey. You're you're walking with somebody in the recovery journey. <laughs> what are the three most important, I don't know, tenants of it? And just just what comes to mind to you? I'm, I'm assuming one is pain neuroscience, just understanding pain. Mm-hmm. Um, what other yeah. tools do you find that are most helpful for people to understand or to learn about, use? To address any fears that they've got, to stop striving and trying and looking and searching, seeking, um, and to pause and to just start noticing what's going on. I think for me, this work that I do um, evolved when we began to look at how we, uh, at the, more about the emotions, about what's going on in the body, embodying what's happening. And certainly I found when people are focused on the pain or even journey, journey's great. And don't get me wrong, that's one of the first things that I would advise patients to do as well. But when they also learn to just pause and be still and not just do mindfulness meditation, for example, I talk about pause, breathe, feel, reassure. To pause when you notice the pain's increased or the pain has um, uh, changed um, or you feel, and th- this is where it changes as you become more emotionally aware. For me, generally, rather than pausing when I have a pain, it's pausing when I've been triggered, when I feel an emotional response. So yeah. I would pause at that point um, and I would calm my breathing down and I would feel, I'd observe what's happening in my body. So I'm not focusing on the pain, I'm focusing on um, maybe even the heart chest area. What's happening? Um, and this is what I would teach a client at the beginning is, you know, what's the difference when you feel love? Are you aware of what's going on in your body? So this interception. If you imagine, bring to mind somebody you love and what are you aware of that changes in your body? And often there's a warmth or a expansiveness in the chest. Um, or I'll ask, you know, if you think about somebody that you're having uh, an issue with um, or doing something that might be painful, sometimes the pain will come on, but also what are you aware of in the body when you do that? And often they can feel a tension or a, 
um, typing or whatever. Sometimes not, and that gives me an indication of how, what their interoception is like. And for some people, it can take a long time to start really tuning inwardly and noticing how we're feeling because then we learn to respond rather than react immediately. We can just pause, breathe, feel. And then when we reassure, it's about reassuring our, like our inner child even, just think we're safe. So our primal brain goes, it's okay, we're safe. And often I will put my hand on my heart and just go, it's all right. Or even stroking our arms because that's soothing as well. And it's a way of self-soothing. I think self-soothing and this interception is a big one. That was all just pure gold. Um, <laughs> I, I love it. Pause, breathe feel and reassure is that what you said yeah yes sometimes people forget the reassure and then what they do is they pause and they breathe and they think that okay right sort it up and go but they don't give themselves time and that's like uh doing a positive spin on it or just saying no everything's okay we're fine and they might miss the feel actually acknowledging expressing the emotion before they reassure themselves and say but it's okay yeah yeah, that feel piece. Um, so many of us just learned that that's the part we repress. It's okay to reassure, but yeah. let's move past the distressing emotion. And then we've got toxic positivity that's just in the body. Yeah, and let's just keep busy, 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 busy out there rather than stop really starting to address going on inside. Yeah, so good. Okay. Um, in closing, um, I want to hear about SERPA and your book, Chronic Pain, Your Key to Recovery. Um, and tell me about like just how that came about SERPA and anything. And I'll put, I'll make sure and put all these in the show notes, but yeah. Um, well, SERPA came about because I have been over to the States three times where some of us like uh, Dr. David Clark, Dr. Hannah Jubiner, uh, we're all getting together for conferences um, and starting to talk about how can we get this out there globally. Um, but all my peer support was in the States uh, and there was nobody over here in the UK. Uh, and also it's quite costly and uh, you know, to be flying over to the States and back all the time. And I just thought, you know, if there's no training. There was no training at all at the time. And I just felt if I, my, my learning came from books and from learning from the others and going to the conferences. Uh, so setting up SERPA in 2010 uh, was about um, starting to train other health professionals and coaches. One, for peer support for me and for all of them. Two, to be able to refer people on to. So, for example, a psychotherapist who understands this work great we can refer on um, to spread the word more quickly than just me with clients if I'm training practitioners they will then work with all their clients as well and to make it easier for the practitioners uh, for health professionals to start doing this work than it was for me um, so that's why I set it up and initially I used to go around the UK training did one in Spain um, and then for various reasons um, moved the training online uh, a lot of people from further afield were asking me if, they, um, uh, if they could access it or if we could do it. And in the end, it actually, that was the best thing for us to do. So we moved the training online um, in, I don't know, to about 2017, I think, 18, 2018. Um, 
And so, and that literally this year, I'm up, upgrading it all. So that's being updated. Uh, so that is available for anybody. But the, the other thing that we have is, as well as the training, which is a level one um, um, information and introduction to all this work and the concept is studies and things. The level two is actually the practitioner training. So um, helping people understand how, how do they uh, determine whether somebody's got mind body, making sure if they are not a doctor, for example, that somebody has had easier. Uh, doctor to rule things out um, and teaching them how to assess patients and then we also have the membership so our membership is the on ongoing throughout the practitioner training and ongoing which means that, that we have a really wonderful uh, like our SERPA family now of, of health professionals and coaches who are doing this work and who are so supportive of each other um, and so we have a lots of things that we do um, within the membership as well and including monthly webinars with people in our field outside our field anything that would help uh, practitioners in this work so yeah so that's been going on quite a while now 12 years <laughs> years um can you can you repeat what what was level one level one's the introduction so there's a lot of the uh, pain science in there the understanding about stress and pain um, and some uh, basic strategies and beginning to um, help people understand more yeah. about uh, this work. The, the, the rest of it, level two, is more about what do we do with clients? How do we assess them? How do we support them? Um, and then uh, and there are assignments within that as well. Okay. Okay. So that's for practitioners, which is amazing and we need that um what do you what do you suggest for somebody who's in chronic pain um what do you have for them uh well we have our server online recovery program that was developed developed before the training um and that was redeveloped it was completely revamped um last year uh, and we brought in, we have so many practitioners now who are specialists in their own field. And so we thought we'll make use of um, these people as well so that we have, you know, somebody who's a breathwork specialist who's do, do, done the uh, lesson on breathwork. Um, we have a meditation teacher who's done um, the section on meditation. So it brings in the family of certain practitioners but it's all aimed at people in pain or with other mind-body conditions, whatever they happen to be. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And then you wrote a book. When did you write the, when did you write the book? I wrote the book in 2014, uh, and it desperately needs updating. And I keep saying we're going to do it, but this year it's the training, and I'm hoping next year will be the book. And then I will write this. So, I mean, there is a second version, which is a which we're on at the moment, but it was just minor changes. Whereas this one, uh, I need to revamp it completely. So much evolves all the time. It's about keeping up with everything. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. I'm sure that. Um, I'm sure that adds a pressure, doesn't it? <laughs> and it adds more to help people. That's the nice thing about it. There's so many things I want to put in that book, but I just I have to focus on one thing at a time. Um, can't do that as well I've been trying to but I've given up and thought no no that'll be after the training but yeah it's it's I want to share I want to get this work out there uh, and I know that I'd like to put more in a book because there's enough but there's more information I'd like to 
All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you and all the, just the gold nuggets in here, neuroscience to application to all of it. So thank you from me and also from the watchers who will definitely benefit from it. So yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jen. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, everybody. That's it for today. And I will see you again next Saturday. Bye. You don't go anywhere yet. Ha, ha, ha.